Up above, you see blood-red clouds boiling across the sky. I hear you and I about to go on an adventure. Uh, you know how Emma likes to have me running around worrying about things. <laughs> you see armies at your back, dwarven, elven, human. You see all the races under your command, and you wickedly smile back at yourself. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. And you see this light being shattered into seven different pieces. It's not worth the risk. Just say it's part of my inquisitive nature. I have been following you for a very long time. Do you want a countdown? Three, two, one. Now. And you feel the ball drop out from beneath you. The Lucky Die Podcast is a weekly 5e Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Join our adventure every Monday wherever you download podcasts by searching for The Lucky Die. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Are you ready to get down with some D and D? I know I am. And I am joined as I am always joined by the modest, motivated, and magnanimous Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? I am ready, Christopher, to talk about D and I am too, but 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 there was a sad day in Buffalo yesterday. It, it was. I I couldn't even watch the game. It was it was the wackiest, uh, wildest game I've seen probably since the Dallas Cowboys played here on Monday night. Yeah, yeah, like twelve years ago. So I went and watched Star Wars movie instead. Oh, Just, did you enjoy it? I did. Good. I liked it too. Yeah. It's not perfect. It's not cinema, but it's a, a good film. You know what? In terms of movies, none of the Star Wars movies are great movies, but they are good science fiction space opera movies. Really? You don't think Empire is good? No, not really. Wow. I thought I thought Empire was quite quite well put together as a piece of like as like a film. I'm like, it's not it's not gone with the wind or anything. But. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so so I just sit and I enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, me too. And I th- I thought it was a really fun fun romp through space. Exactly. It's it's a good uh, successor to the other previous eight movies, as far as I'm concerned. I-, I would also agree with that. All right. Well, with that longer than normal uh, bit of bit of thing, and also if you're a Patriots fan, sorry, but they lost. Thank God. That was even better. I think it was. <laughs> I yeah. That game I watched twice. <laughs> <laughs> I almost made Chris spit his coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You did. All right. Now, now instead of uh, your minute of foolishness, you got a, two minutes of foolishness. We're going to get into some a- announcements now. Um, yeah. First thing is greetings from one of your new community managers. There's a uh, wonderful article on the AL site where, uh, oh man, I'm going to screw this. Maat Crook introduces herself. Duh, did you want to talk a little bit about this? Because I know uh, you you were also one of the AL admins, and I don't I don't think you've had the pleasure of meeting Maat yet. Not that I remember. Uh, possibly you know long ago, but. It's great to have new uh, new blood come into the admin community. So she uh, and Latia uh, are new admins because Lisa uh, Penrose stepped down. Oh. And I mean, Lisa is still going to be involved. She's involved in, in on the D and D side of things for Wizards itself uh, as an as a as a, like a community manager sort of person. And she also works for the DMs Guild, I believe, uh, as a community management uh, person. So. 
she's not going away. She's just stepping down from this role. So Plus she has a Twitch show on the D and D site and she's a streamer like playing games uh, with uh, the, the Ravenloft mists game that she's in. That's pretty fun. Yep. So I mean, she's, she's not going away in total. She's just stepping back from her duties for AL. So it was great to have uh, two new faces. And so, as Chris said, there's an article up on the AL site where uh, Ma'at introduces herself and we we talk about AL a bit here, right? We don't focus ex- exclusively on AL, but but we talk about it. And what caught me as particularly touching uh, in Maat's introduction was that she accepted her role as a community manager because she wants to support the community that supports her. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, "I want you to have all the fun. I want you to feel safe at the table, and I want you. I want to help you while you help others feel more welcome." And you know, that really is, despite some complaints you might get about organized play in its community, and some of those complaints are well well justified. This is the best of what organized play in general and Adventures League specifically has to offer, right? It's bringing people together who otherwise might not come together to share this game we love and to do so productively and to do so with a shared love of the game. And so... You know, when I read that coming from a community manager, it makes me feel good. It reminds me of, you know, I've been involved since 2001 in various campaigns. And most of the people that are working on it, whether it's the admins themselves or people at game stores who organize things or people who DM, you know, a home game, um, it, it, it's all about that shared love of D&D. And so... You know, to to bring in more people and to welcome more people and to eliminate the exclusionary parts of organized play and the parts, the negative parts, and to highlight this this community is is really what we need. So I was very pleased and a little touched to hear that come from Maat. Yeah, that is a very a lovely introduction, and um, I, I read the whole thing, and she seems like she'll be a wonderful addition to to everything that Wizards is doing out in the community with D and D. And I look forward to meeting her hopefully uh, soon. Um, we don't re- actually, I mean, we do talk about AL uh, a bit, but not as much lately because we've been doing this uh, walkthrough for yeah. uh, Descent into Avernus. Yep. But uh, but yeah, you're right. Like, w- like I think we used to talk about AL a little bit more than we do these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing to remember is, right, AL is D&D, um, but D&D isn't necessarily AL. Sure. And, and so it's good for AL players who sometimes get this tunnel vision of what D&D is based on just what Adventures League does. To, to expand their horizons and show that there are different ways to play. and But it also helps people who may have had bad experiences with organized play in the past to see that there is a large and flourishing and accepting community uh, of various types of players who do play organized play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good to, to try to bridge that gap every once in a while. I agree. Maybe we should at some point in the not too distant future do like a, a, a talk about what's been going on with like the Adventures League and what's what's available for people out there. It's been a while since we've done something like that. It's true. It's true. Uh, well, we'll we'll get to that when we get tired of uh, our walkthrough of uh, Descendant Avernus, which actually we're, we're, you know, we're more than halfway through, I'd imagine. Yep. We've we've got a few episodes left for sure, but we're uh, we're moving through. All right, uh, Ed Greenwin talks about Forgotten Realms design. So this is pretty exciting. I mean, it's it's always good when you get the the master of the Forgotten Realms talking about how to build things, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about a world-building genius, you don't have to search much further than Ed Greenwood. And he is doing a series of columns on world-building uh, on EN World. 
and I I actually missed this. I'm surprised it wasn't more prevalent out there uh, getting getting noticed, but uh, I just happened to run across it. And he's on, I think, his second or third uh, column already in the series. And just to give you a feel for what he's doing, he says, so how to turn a name on a map of the realms into a place that feels real? Well, I start with an idea in my head of what's there, and regardless of whether I'm developing a locale for a story or for a gaming adventure, from that base idea, I leap straight into what gamers now call adventure hooks. And I think that's super important that even when you're just building a world and you're you're delving into some pretty nitty-gritty details, always be thinking about it as an adventure. What are the players and their characters going to want to do? And if you t- uh, you tackle world building in that direction, um, it's going to be a much easier go for you. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And mm-hmm. I'm I mean that obviously you do too. It is pretty much your uh, your bread and butter, and the thing that you've been preaching to me for about a year and a half now. <laughs> all throughout the all throughout the Avalon process, you were preaching that to me. I'm like, make it so it's gameable. Make it so it's an adventure hook. I'm like, yes, yes, I understand. And now I I really just do believe that. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so he is three articles in, and he's what he's doing is he's taking a place on the map of the Forgotten Realms called Rethmar, Rat Hole of the Shar, and he's he's basically doing world building right before your eyes. So um, if you are, are following the Let's Design an Adventure series that I'm doing on D&D Beyond, it's probably going to come out to be very similar along those lines of of explaining how you do something and then just showing how it's done. These endeavors can be challenging to do, so hats off to Ed for even attempting it because sometimes doing creative work is difficult enough, but then writing about doing the creative work can get you too much into your own head you can break yourself <laughs> well and on top of that like you're writing about creative work in game design which is something completely different even world building for game design because it's right. not the same as world building for novel writing sure that, that is so very true Go, which is another thing that we could probably talk about at some point in the future <laughs> yeah i'm sure we will at some point uh but it's there on en world um if you just go check out uh check out the main site it'll you'll see at least one of ed's previous columns now, this last thing, uh, I thought I found this and I thought it was was adorable. And um, just to go back to the previous thing, I'm surprised I didn't see it because I actually do a search for D&D news for the previous week or two. And it didn't pop up in any of the things that I looked at. And there's like a collection of um, of uh, blogs that collect articles and it wasn't on any of them. Hmm. So weird that it didn't show up in any, in any yeah. of those places. Anyways, uh, our third and last thing for the, the day is this D&D gingerbread dungeon is edible and guarded by gummy bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will have a, There will be a link in the show notes. You should check this out. This group of gamers, uh, it seems like this is like a yearly thing for them now. They design a gingerbread dungeon for a Christmas holiday game. Mm-hmm. And the monsters are like Sour Patch Kids. Some of them explode. They have like marshmallow beholders. Um, it, it, it's a, they, they eat the... They eat the things as they explore and kill monsters. Yeah. So think of like Dwarven Forge, but you could eat it. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And then Monster Minis, but you can eat them. Uh-huh. And, and they're not like, they're not like a, uh, a, a, a starburst on the board either, which is oh, cool. No. Don't get me wrong. They're yeah. like fully sculpted things out of marshmallows and, and whatnot. Yep. Oreo truffle beholders. <laughs> so. So if you cut off a stalk, do you get to take the stalk and eat it? Exactly. The gusher gummy bears are of note because they explode on death, dealing damage to adjacent enemies. I mean, it's just fun, right? That's just fun stuff. And and you you, know, you love to see things like this that's outside the norm, but 
you know, it brings in people to the hobby who have other hobbies like, you know, cooking and, and food and, and putting it all together. And it's, it's just great to see stories like that. I agree. I mean, there's a big crossover with uh, crafty people and, mm-hmm. and people that can cook and all that kind of stuff into D&D. So, you know, there you go. Uh, get your get your baking on. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get to our main topic for the day, which is Descent Part 11. We're now once again going to finish the uh, Path of Demons and maybe start on the Path of Devils. Sound good? That sounds like a plan to me. Here, let me let me recap this up for us. Let's do so, this. So we started in Baldur's Gate. We learned that Eltrell was sent to Avernus for, due to some terrible deals. Uh, they meet Lulu, a Hollyfont, who travels to Avernus with them. They find Eltrell and learn that the city is hovering, being slowly dragged into the river Styx by change, chains, and the companion has turned into a horrible dark void. Uh, the city's got a bunch of survivors, and it's not completely overrun by demons yet, or devils, because there's a war going on, that blood war. And uh, then they escape from the city after doing some things there, hit Fort Knucklebones, meet uh, Mad Maggie, who is a hag, who unlocks more of Lulu's memories. And then Lulu's like, time to go find Zeriel's sword, because that could solve this whole problem. Uh, except Lulu's memories are skewed, and as you start, you uh, she sends you on a path. And we're looking at the path of demons right now. You get a choice for demons or devils, but we're doing the demons one right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a bunch of set-piece encounters that are a chain until we get to the crypt of the Hellriders, which is a little bit more of a dungeon, but not much more. Mm-hmm. We ended last week on the crypt of the Hellriders. So this is the first time along this path... Uh, this is the seventh, uh, eighth, seventh or eighth <laughs> step on the path. And this is the first time where there's like an actual dungeon to go into. Mm-hmm. And the characters have been told that uh, one of Zeriel's lieutenants oversees this crypt where the Hellriders who died down here have been buried. And so it's a nice little uh, dungeon that basically can be done pretty quickly, depending on how uh, your characters go through it. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the purpose? They're trying to find Olanthus, if I remember correctly. Yep. And Olanthus can guide them to the next step. And so Olanthus is not present at in the crypts when the characters arrive, but he is alerted to their presence if they take certain actions. Yeah. So there, there are some great thematic uh, pieces here. It's not a horribly overwrought... Uh, combat heavy sort of dungeon there's basically three three or four different areas uh, they can meet some ghosts they can uh, find some things that bind these ghosts to the the crypt since they pledge themselves to, to Zariel, they remain pledged to her and until that pledge is broken they cannot leave their souls are, are stuck here yeah but the players can actually break those seals and release these ghosts during this dungeon Exactly. Yeah, and that's one of the main main things that could happen. It's not necessary; it doesn't have to, but it's a really cool uh, bit that could that could occur. Yep, it's a good story element. Mm-hmm. But then once they uh, like break that, once they disturb souls, once they learn what's actually going on here, Olanthius arrives. Now he's a Death Knight, and it's very important that the characters. Learn the situation here before he arrives. Yes, because this death knight will whoop them. He's a CR 17 creature, and at this point, the characters are probably about ninth level. So could they win? Yes. Is it likely? Not really. But Olanthius does not want to be here. He does not want to be doing this job. And so as long as the characters learn about that, learn what's going on here, when he does arrive... 
And when he arrives, he like gathers all the ghosts that are around, turns them into specters and says, okay, let's go get these intruders. Mm -hmm. So the characters have to be aware or you as the DM have to make them aware that he is willing to deal. Yeah. I mean, he could recognize Lulu. That could be a way to get him to deal. True. When faced with overwhelming force like that, I mean, Alantha shouldn't just uh, wipe them out in one go. Alantha should be like, what are you doing here? Yep. Because it's unusual to see a bunch of humans in hell, right? Right. And so Olanthus, being very willing to to make a deal, tells them, yes, I am willing to go against Zariel. What you need to do is create a distraction, and I've got the perfect distraction for you. And can I say, um, out of all these fetch quests, this is the first one that's like, oh, yeah, this one actually makes sense, and I wouldn't mind doing it, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. Th this is one that isn't just go here because this person needs something. This has a, a, a bigger background. Uh, this has some ties to the original story of Zeriel. You know, all of that. It comes together well here. Mm -hmm. um, and what Olanthius tells the characters is there's a demon lord that Zeriel has trapped. If you let him go, he's going to go after her, and that would give you some cover for when you have to deal with her because she'll probably be dealing with this demon lord because this demon lord's no joke yeah so to get there he uh the demon lord's in a prison and the only way to get there is to go to the arches of ulak where you can go through the arches there are a portal that will take you wherever you want to go and you can go there mm -hmm. so the arches are neat they're 200 feet tall they're they're gigantic um there's nothing that's really going on here as far as an encounter goes. They don't act, there's uh I don't know if there's is there, I don't think there's anybody guarding this either. No, nope, there's no one guarding it. Yeah. Um it gives a background of them. The archdevils used to use them to to bring entire regiments to other places of existence within all the planes. They were very powerful. This is important to note because that means you can drive an infernal war machine through it no problem. Mm -hmm. So if you have one you can just take it through there. Yep. Now, the, the, the magic has waned in these arches. So what this does is it makes it a limited use. So characters can't just escape the nine hells with these arches. They can only take you to places within the nine hells. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is a limited option for the characters. But what's cool about it is now that it's there, you as the DM, if the characters screw up in some way and they can't get from one place to another because they killed someone they shouldn't have or they went on this different path that they shouldn't have, you can always bring them back here and say, oh, okay, these arches are here and they're not useful now. You've already used them once. But if you do this ritual, you can reignite their magic and use them again. Yes. Uh, I think that this is a neat place if you want to, to have a fight with another warlord of Avernus because the fight can go between both sides of the portal. This is true too. Yeah, I think that's a really cool set piece that you can set up. Yep. Um, if you like miniatures and things like that too, you can actually put the gates on the board. Mm -hmm. I mean, still use relative positioning, but like you can have like your war machines on both sides, like in this this massive gate in between. Right. And be going back and forth between it, it'd be kind of fun. Yeah, and it's that's e uh, even better advice if you have a group of players who are more into combat than anything else. Because in this path, there have been a lot of places where there's been role-playing, but not necessarily combat, and definitely not difficult combat. Yeah, uh, we missed, we didn't necessarily touch on it, but in the previous uh, thing, the Crypt of the Hellriders, there's a nifty encounter with a bunch of mummy warlocks that hide in a giant metal urn, mm -hmm. and they'll let the characters walk by and then ambush them. Yep. 
Um, also, there's the possibility to fight wraiths because there's these really lovely uh, tombs with red roses on them. It's like, here's all this gray, and then there's this beautiful red rose on top of them, which yep. is very uh, unsettling. And if you touch it, you get attacked. Yep. So, uh, like, aside from that, there's not much going on fight-wise, right? Right, exactly. And you could just as easily, you know, pass over those. And those aren't necessarily difficult combats for ninth-level characters. They are not. All right, so then uh, after you go through the, the arches, you get to Kostichi's Maw. Yeah. Kostichi was defeated by Zeriel. Mm -hmm. uh, Kostichi has this giant warhammer. Zeriel took it. And then uh, Zeriel chained Kostichi at the bottom of this chasm in a bunch of tar, and they can barely uh, stay above the tar, and they're uh, basically constantly getting, you know, dunked. It's mm -hmm. pretty awful, actually. Yeah. So, so Kostichi is a little bit angry being, you know, a demon lord that's been defeated, had his warhammer stolen and chained to the bottom of a tar filled chasm. So the characters, all they need to do is free him. Now there, there are, there is a chain devil with some hellhounds down there who guard him. So if once they're dealt with, the characters can pretty easily free Kostichi. So as far as uh, running this encounter, if they fight down by the tar, there's a bunch of chains that aren't attached to Kostichi that the chain devil can utilize that are in the tar. So, like, you can have these tarred up chains whip out from the tar and attack the characters, too, which would be pretty neat, actually. Yeah, it, I mean, this is definitely a good set-piece battle, and you could have a lot of fun with even adding some elements to it, um, like bu tar bubbling up and geysering up and doing things, you know, you could, there's a lot to work with there. Yep. Kostichi uh, getting angry and starting to move around uh, vigorously and then creating like these waves of tar that, that become a problem. Yep. There's all, all sorts of neat things that could happen. So once, once the characters defeat the chain devil and his pets and free uh, Kostichi, he uh, basically screams, I want my hammer and I'm a coming for you, Zeriel. And he takes off. Yep. And then you can go back to Olanthus, and Olanthus will tell you where the Bleeding Citadel is, mm -hmm. which is a, the next part of the adventure. Yep. So that is the first path that the characters might take through. And we've, we've spent basically three episodes <laughs> uh, talking about that one path. Now we're going we're, to we're switch and talk about the other path that the characters can take uh, to find out where the Bleeding Citadel is. And that is the Path of Devils. All right. So... The first thing is the demon zapper. So you said you had some issues with the box text, right? This is a pr great example of if you're going to use box text, use it to sh tell the characters exactly what they see. So the box text is short. And I thought, okay, cool. It says radiant light cascades from a rusted metal monument shaped like the upraised mandibles of a giant beetle. Okay. Other than the fact that they're talking about mandibles, multiple instead of just one. Okay, I, I get it. It's right. It's a curved metal rusted monument. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm picturing. And there's light of light emanating from the middle of it. Emanating from it doesn't say middle of it. It says light emanating from it. So I'm like, okay. So I've got this picture in my head. And then the very next thing, which is outside the box text for the DM, it says the light cascades from a unicorn named Mooncolor, who is trapped inside a 10 foot diameter sphere of magical force that prevents any matter from passing into it and blocks any spells cast into or out of it. The spear is suspended between the zapper spines 50 feet above the ground. That is an editing error. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm like, wait a second. 
I, and I like, so I had to go back and read the box text and read that and read the box text. And I had to like read it three or four times. If you're going to put the box text in, just put it in, make it what it is. And you know, even if they had just taken that and, uh, to remove some of the details that the characters couldn't know, like the name of the unicorn. Just use that as the box text. Yeah. The light cascades from a 10-foot diameter sphere of magical force right? that is suspended between the mandibles of a giant beetle. The 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 monument shaped like the upright mandibles of a giant beetle. There you go. That's a way that's way better. Like we now all see what's going on. Yep. So just as the DM, you're gonna want to make a little note there that the box text doesn't quite capture what the characters are actually seeing. Mm-hmm. And that's why you listen to this podcast, so we can help you with things like that. So you know going in. All right, so the there's a guard. It's a Dao who made a bad deal, but can give you information if you help this Dao get out of the bad deal. And that, that information, uh, it's about Bell, and they could help overthrow Zeriel with a, with an, you know, you could uh, go get to Bell, who could help overthrow Zeriel, with, and this Dao will give you a letter of introduction. Mm-hmm. Um. But in order to, to do that, you need to go and find an oracle named Red Ruth in the Bone Brambles. Right. Red Ruth is the one that will tell the Dao how to get out of his bad deal. Uh-huh. And then the Dao will give the letter of introduction. Yep. So, again, here, you know, we've got a unicorn, but there's really no more mention of the unicorn. Um, then we've got the Dao who's guarding it, but he's not really guarding it because he's not going to pop up an attack. Right. He pops up and says, hey, can you get me out of this deal? Um, which is fine, but it's just there's there's a lot happening, but not a lot of guidance for the DM about how to handle it. So you kind of gonna have to make it up on your own. There's no talk of of the unicorn really after it's first mentioned. It doesn't give its background, how it got here, any of that. Um, so it's a cool detail, but you as the DM are gonna have to make stuff up. It is just for the the dungeon master because there's no bearing on the adventure whatsoever. Right. It's it's basically for the dungeon master to be like, oh, there's light emanating from this thing, and this is why. Right. So, I mean, do you want you have to decide? Do you want your characters to end up with this unicorn following them around? Um, if if they can rescue it from this sphere it's trapped in, and then how does that change the the campaign at all, if at all? Um, there's one more thing I want to say about this encounter because words matter. Because words matter, right? So if this sphere is meant to zap demons like a bug zapper. Cool. That's hilarious. I love it. Then it says these exact words. The sphere targets the nearest fiend that moves within 100 feet of it. Okay, so fiends are now demons and devils by rule. So now it's not just a demon zapper. Now it's a devil zapper. Yep. All right, so you may want to change that or not because there's a chance that the characters might have a fiend with them. There could be an imp from some previous encounter. <laughs> oh. So th- there's that. Now, once this sphere attacks, right, the sphere targets the nearest fiend that moves within 100 feet of it, discharging a beam of radiance that forms a line five feet wide and up to 100 feet long. Okay, zap, extending to the target. So basically a lightning bolt shoots out in a straight line toward the fiend. Any creature in that line... So now we're not talking about fiends anymore. We're talking about any creature in that line that has 100 hit points or fewer disintegrates into a pile of ash. At ninth level, there aren't going to be many characters with over 100 hit points. Yeah, maybe fighters and barbarians. Right. So, and that's not make a save. That's not. That's just you just dead. You just dead. Now, on the bright side, 
this thing is pretty far above the ground. So when it shoots down, it's at an angle. So as a, as a dungeon master, you can just rule that it's not going to, unless that imp or that fiend is like standing really close to somebody, it's probably not going to hit anybody else. Right. Uh, just something to be aware of. It is something to be aware of though. As the DM, you may want to tweak that a little bit. And I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's funny that it would get a character in there. I just wouldn't disintegrate them into a pile of ash with no saving throw, no attack roll or no chance of survival. I mean, you could just take their arm off. That's fine. Yeah, they, they don't need that, right? Right. There's already rules for that in in here that we've talked about. Yeah, you could just grow one. Just throw some demon ichor on it. Ichor on it. It'll be fine. They'll just like aloe, only demon ichor. <laughs> oh man! All right. Yeah, that's so a good. So uh, once you take the deal, because that's like your next step. If you don't take the deal, you're just kind of stuck, or you just start making stuff up as you go, which is perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, you go to the bone brambles. I actually like the bone brambles. I think it's an interesting place. It is. So at the bone brambles, the characters are looking. For Red Ruth, who is, has the means by which to get this Dao out of his bad deal. So they give you a map of the Bone Brambles, and it is like a hedge maze. It's a, not, not really a hedge maze. It's like an evil hedge maze. That's probably a better way to put it. And I think it's an interesting way to handle a maze. So there are four dead ends in this maze, and you can let them wander the map if you want to, or you can just have them make checks to navigate the maze. Um, if you fail a check, it's a survival check to, you know... I think it's a survival check to, to mm -hmm. work your way through the maze. Although you can rule whatever you want it to be. I think that's just sure. what it says in the text. If you fail that check, then you hit an encounter from this chart. And there's four encounters that you can possibly hit. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I don't know exactly how people want to handle that. I think Sean has some ideas. Yeah. So I, I like that. I think it's great. You know, make the check mean something and then have consequences for failure. Mm -hmm. And and that's exactly what it does. And they can fail up to four times. There could be four different encounters. I liked the four different wandering encounters because they were sort of different things. One was a combat. One was more role playing. One was kind of exploration based. So all that was cool. The only thing I would do is I've noticed in, in fifth edition D&D checks like this are very hard to not succeed on um, because people will just pour resources. They know it's important. So. Someone will assist. All right. So there you've got an advantage right away. People will dump all those spells that give you bonuses to your, uh, you know, your, your skill checks. Sorry, there are no skill checks in, in 5e to your ability checks. Uh, so it's very, very difficult to fail. So I, what I would do is I would either raise to DC to actually give them a shot at failing or make it a group check because this isn't just a single thing happening, right? This is over a series of rounds where they are exploring or even minutes or even hours, depending on how big you want to make this. So don't just make it a single check or make it a group check. So there's a little more drama to it. That'd be, that'd be my suggestion. Uh, I'm with you. I, I think that all makes perfect sense. Also, you could just have them encounter some of these things if you choose to, because mm -hmm. you know, why not? I mean, it takes yeah. away the, the, the randomness and whatnot, or the, the, uh, the skill of the characters for navigating. Mm-hmm. Regardless, there's going to be an encounter. <laughs> this is true. Because uh, once you get to the middle of the maze, you find Red Ruth. And I think Red Ruth is fascinating. She wears a dress made from stitched together bones. And she also has a string of infant skulls hung around her neck that chatter nursery rhymes. The, yeah, that's that's awesome and creepy as hell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love her motivation. She's like, you know, you, you want me to help you get this Dow out of this deal? Fine. Uh, why don't you go to the uh, Infernal Rapture at the Wandering Emporium and get me a nice pampering session because I could use a beauty makeover. It's true. It's true. She wants a makeover. Now, 
Well, that seems ridiculous because it is kind of ridiculous. And so far, every time we've run into a hag in this, it's been ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that's that's at least on theme, right? Yeah, I mean, hags are difficult because basically hags are supposed to work on, I mean, in mythology, right? Hags are supposed to work on the fact that they are tricky and you're not quite sure what they are. In D&D, though, you pretty much always know you're dealing with a hag. You know, you wander out into the woods and then there's this little cottage and there's this beautiful person in it. And you're like, yeah, that's a hag. Yeah. Or you wander in and it's an ugly person. And you're like, okay, that's a hag. Um, because it's always a hag. <laughs> it's always a hag. And, uh. and so then, then it becomes a stereotype, right? You play them first like the monsters they are. But then after doing that for 72 different hag encounters, um, if you've played long enough, then you have to find a twist to it. So then the twist becomes, well, they're not necessarily horrible, horrible evil. They're just kind of creepy, but they're, you can get some good out of them if you make a deal with them. You know, so it's, it's kind of this continuum of how do you deal with this hag encounter? And this one just goes right to the silly. Yes, it does. Uh, can we talk about these brambles for a second and how terrible they are? Oh yeah. So these all used to be, uh, trees, like a forest. And they used to have dryads in them, but Radruth's influence has caused them to wither away, if I remember correctly. And uh, all of these dryads and and whatnot in in here have turned into evil banshees that used to be those dryads, and they they're not happy. Like they're they're tortured and and in, in a bad place. Yep. So uh, the encounter that occurs is like she wants them to keep an eye on this place. Mm-hmm. Uh. Well, first they have to go to the Emporium. Yes, then they come Ma- back. Make the appointment. Then they come back, and she says, okay, I'm going to take off, have my spa day. Uh, you stay here and guard the place. And while they're staying there guarding the place, they get attacked by a bunch of angry dryads who don't like Red Ruth very much. Not to mention an undead treant. And an undead treant. And I, there's nothing I love more than undead treants. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the brambles, and by the way, these brambles, they're not like a spacious place. Mm-mm. And the walls are very thin. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any rules that talk about what happens when you go through the walls or what, how to deal with the walls. Maybe there is, and I just missed it. Uh, if there are, I don't remember them. Let's put it that way. So you should probably think about that, like yeah. how you want to handle these brambles that are probably um, deadly in some way, shape, or form, right? Like touching the walls is probably bad. Yep. And your triant might want to like knock people through the walls or stomp through the walls themselves. Mm-hmm. So, and, and to know... To no detriment to the Treon, right? Because the Treon's already undead wood stuff. Yep, yep. Um, but that is uh, that is the uh, bone brambles. And uh, next week, I think we'll dig into the Wandering Emporium because that's where you're going to go. Yep, yep. That's where you'd have to go before you come back. Mm-hmm. And there's much more to talk about with the Wandering Emporium more than just this encounter. So we'll see how much we can get through uh, after talking about all of that. Yeah, we'll we'll try to pick out the the coolest things and talk about that for around uh, twenty five to thirty minutes. Because mm-hmm. I've wanted to talk about the wandering porn forever, and now yeah. we really get to to dig into it. Mm-hmm. All right, well that's our episode. I wanted to say thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, let's do some Patreon shots. We got a bunch of them because I, I need to get through the the rest of the list so we can get to the the next month's list. Uh, Gem Pixelscapes Gagney, uh, Joseph Peralta, Catalan Clock, Mike Amer, Ninjabi, The Rainmaker, Richard Ruane, Roy McLeod, Savannah Sizer, Scott Ryder, Sean P. Kelly, Steve Bissonette, Steve Radabaugh, The Tabletop Bellhop, Tad Lechman, T. Kustik, Theodore Atkinson, Victor Wyatt, Zach Goins, Noah Bond, Austin Lemke, Boudet, Chris Foster, Dan Simons, David Walker, Donahue McCarthy, Drew Smith, Glenn Seiler, Jason Panella, Jason Pitt, 
Jean Lorbert, Jeff Stevens, Jim Morrison, Joe Rasso, John, just John, M.T. Black, Matthew Pezzarelli, Robert Dorgan, Ryan Bolter, Thomas Hook, Troy E. Taylor, and Troy Pitchelman. Oof. That's all, I mean, we have a lot of patrons, which we mm. greatly appreciate. Yes. Speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page. It's right on the website. And for uh, $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out like you just heard a, a, once a month, approximately. Yep. And for $4 a month, you get a shout out. We also get to see our show notes, which have links to all the things we talk about. And you also get access to our Slack room uh, where you can chat with us whenever you'd like. Or for just $1 a month, you get access to our special bonus segment called Sneak Attack. I mean, there's a total podcast out there called Sneak Attack, but our our Patreon Sneak Attack show is Secret Sneak Attack. That's right. It's not a public sneak attack. It's in the dark sneak attack. <laughs> you know, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple podcast review. Yeah. Or you can just help us out by spreading the word on social media uh, that you enjoy the show or that you hate the show and that people should come and listen to say how much they hate it. You know, because is there such thing as bad publicity? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. I Maybe, maybe not. I, I feel like there is bad publicity these days. Yep. Well, if you want to give me some bad publicity, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Sean Merwin, or you can go with the Down with D&D forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. How about you, Chris? So you can hit me up at the light 101 on Twitter, or if you want to get a hold of me and Sean uh, via the network Twitter, it's at misdirectedmark. We almost always see them because we get sent them or they get like reshared and, and we tend to tend to see them pop up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also our website if you just want to listen to the show or, or make comments there. Uh, if you are interested in more content from Misdirected Mark, there's our Twitch channel, which is uh, twitch.tv slash Misdirected Mark. Uh, we also have a YouTube page where this show and all the other shows in the network pop up. And in all in a lot of those places, you can find other great shows such as The Gnomecast, where several gnomes from the Gnome Stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So uh, what are we going to do now, Sean? We're going to go kill some monsters. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?